started a series last Sunday in the book of Isaiah. Um, today we come to, uh, and so there's a lot of introduction, there was a lot of a history, did it feel like a history class last week? Yeah, a little bit? Okay. Um, so that was just our introduction, meeting Isaiah and meeting uh, the, the historical context of his day. I want to give you just a little bit of uh, recap, if we may, uh, in case you maybe missed that, you can always listen to it online. But here's a map to get us started. Uh, this is the map of the divided kingdom. So in the year 931 BC, a guy by the name of King Solomon, son of David, died, and he left his throne to his son, and his son very quickly messed things up, and the kingdom became divided between the north and the south. So what used to be a unified Israel, 10 of the tribes in the north defected and became, retained the name Israel. Two of the tribes in the south, Benjamin and Judah, became the southern kingdom. Um, Judah being the larger of the two tribes, the larger landmass of the two tribes, they took the name Judah as the name of the southern kingdom. Follow along a couple of hundred years, and a guy by the name of Isaiah shows up on the scene. He does his ministry during the years of four of the kings of that southern kingdom. David's bloodline runs through the nation of Judah. Okay, so David's, uh, you know, his, his son Solomon, Solomon's son, and on down the line, they all run through the southern kingdom. So let's go ahead and check out the next slide. And you can see there the ministry of Isaiah takes place from the years when, a when a I'm sorry, Uzziah was king, Jotham, Ahaz, and then Hezekiah. So four kings of Judah, Isaiah's ministry spans their reign. It begins the last year of Uzziah. When Uzziah dies, that also is the very beginning of, um, of Isaiah's uh, ministry. And then, but it's interesting because Isaiah is making predictions about stuff that happens hundreds of years off into the future with the Babylonian Empire. We'll take a look at that more, not today. Um, so our text for today comes from uh, Isaiah chapter 7. Before I get to there, let me ask you a question. Here's my question. I think we got a slide for this. My question is, and this is a question I want, to keep, want you to keep in mind as we take a look at, the, we're just looking at one story today in Scripture, Isaiah chapter 7. And in this story, as we're going through the stories, you're hearing the details of this story play out, I want you to be asking yourself this question. The question is, did Isaiah know? Uh, because Isaiah chapter 7 is about this virgin birth, that this, this gal who's a virgin is going to give birth miraculously. Like, did he know that he was actually predicting about the life of Jesus? Did he know that he was predict, making predictions, making indicators, if you would, for the people of Jesus' days? And when Jesus showed up, they'd be like, aha, there's our Messiah. Jesus is Messiah. And so that question, just keep that in the forefront of your mind as we're plugging along through this snippet in the life of the ministry of Isaiah. Again, our text comes from Isaiah chapter 7. I'm going to ask if you would to stand to your feet for the reading of God's word. Isaiah chapter 7, beginning at verse 10. Again, we stand week in and week out to be reminded, friends, that this is where truth comes from. Lots of opinions out there, right? Lots of people who have thoughts on things, who think they know what the truth is, and they may have some semblance of the truth. They may even be speaking truth. But friends, we know what is the truth by when we open up God's Word, so we stand week in and week out for that. Isaiah chapter 7, this is part of that story, part of that snippet. Um, here he's interacting with a King Ahaz. Here we go, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God, let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? 
Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. You may be seated. Now you may have noticed, <clears throat> before I get into this, you may have noticed that the text we just read is different than the text that's on, the, on your uh, bulletin. Well, I thought I was going to be ambitious today and I was going to cover chapter 7, chapter 8, and chapter 9. But we're just, I, I realized about halfway through the week there was no chance for me doing that. But anyhow, so we're just going to stick with Isaiah chapter. Unless you all want to hang out here till well after lunchtime, because I got plenty of material. We can go an hour and a half, two hours, anyway. But um, so we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 7 today in this story. So let's go back to the beginning of the story, Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 1. It says, In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah. So just real quickly, if you remember our list of kings there, Isaiah's ministry begins under the last year of Uzziah's reign, and then it goes in all the way, spans the whole of Uzziah's son Jotham, and then the whole, whole time of Uzziah's grandson Ahaz, and all the way through Hezekiah. So this is in the days of Ahaz that particular king of Judah. It says in verse 1 that Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, came to Jerusalem. So here's two more kings that were introduced to here in this individual story. A guy by the name of Rezin, he was the king of the Syria, of Syria, not to be confused with Assyria. He was the king of Syria. Syria was a small little nation, also known as Aram, just north of Israel. And so this king Rezin comes to Jerusalem along with another king, the king of that northern territory, the king of the northern kingdom of Israel. So Pekah and Rezin, along with their armies, arrive outside of the city walls of Jerusalem. And why are they there? It says to wage war against Jerusalem. Here's the backdrop of all of this. So you've got this geopolitical superpower known as the Assyrian Empire that's basically running the show across the Middle East the Far East, the Near East, that whole part of the world. So extending from, I don't know, you might say the borders of Pakistan all the way through to the eastern uh, shores of the Mediterranean Sea down into Egypt. They're running all of this show. Well, the Assyrians have a little slice of land that if they want to get down into Egypt, they've got to be able to make sure they've conquered that land, and that land runs right through Israel because everywhere east of Israel is desert. Can't cross the desert. And so they've got to come down through what's called the Levant. They've got to come down through Israel. They've got to come through Aram as well, or Syria. They've got to come through Judah as well to make their way down to Egypt. Um, the kings of these little tiny nations along that stretch of land that runs on the eastern shore of the Mediterranean Sea realize that the Assyrians are a real threat to them. And they also recognize that they're small, themselves are small. And the only way that they have a chance to survive against this massive Assyrian empire is if they band together. And so that's what Pekka and Rezin have decided to do. They say, hey, you know what? We can't fight. We can't take on the Assyrian empire individually. But maybe if we band together, we might be able to put up a fight. We may be able to defend ourselves. Pekka and Rezin also realize that Ahaz has been sending ambassadors from the nation of Judah just to their south, to Assyria. And that Ahaz is thinking about entering into some sort of an agreement with the Assyrian Empire where he's willing to say, hey, you know what? I'll pay y'all some money every year. I'll give y'all some sort of tribute every year. We can become a vassal state of yours if you would even like, um, if you'll just leave us alone. And so they realize that Ahaz is basically entering into a treaty, if you would, with the Assyrian Empire. Well, what does that mean for Pekah and Rezin? 
who are caught in between these two, right? Assyria is the northern threat, and now all of a sudden Judah would become a southern threat. That means if they go to war against the Assyrians, they're going to get attacked from the south. And any general will tell you that you do not want to be involved in a two-front war. So here's what Pekah and Rezin have decided to do. They are going to preempt the potential disastrous situation of the Assyrians attacking them from the north and Ahaz attacking them from the south. And they're going to go ahead and deal with the threat to their southern border. So that's what they do. They head down there to Jerusalem outside of the city walls. But as verse 1 reports, they are not yet able to mount an attack against it. Verse 2. It says that when Ahaz learns that he's got all these soldiers outside of the city walls of Jerusalem, here's Ahaz and the people's reaction. The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people inside those city walls shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. I mean, this is not a couple of hundred soldiers outside the city. And this is perhaps thousands of soldiers that have assembled outside of Jerusalem. They are now walled in inside of Jerusalem. Um, this, is, this is a very difficult uh, situation for them that they're facing. They're terrified. It says down in verse 6 that the intention of these two kings, Pekah and Rezin, verse 6, was to go up against Judah and terrify it and let us con conquer it for ourselves and set up a puppet king, the son of Tabeel. The Bible scholars have no idea who Tabeel is. He was probably a third cousin, maybe a fifth cousin of somebody in the bloodline of David. And he saw an opportunity, right? He's an opportunist to get on the throne of Judah. And he's like, I know that I'll never get there by people passing away. It's never going to come to me that way. But here's these other two kings that have said, well, we'll put you on the throne. And so Tabeel says, okay, sure, that's it. It's worth a shot. So back to verse 3. So there's this army outside the city walls of Jerusalem, verse 3. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz. Report to him, you and Shear Yashub, your son. So Isaiah has a son. He has another son. We're going to learn about verse eight, or chapter 8 maybe next week. That was my ambition, but we didn't get there. Um, and he says, here's what, I'm going to, here's what I want you to tell Ahaz, verse 4. Say to him, be careful, be quiet. Do not fear. And do not let your heart be faint because these two smoldering stumps. So let me just kind of paint the picture here for just a second. Isaiah um, arrives at Jerusalem after these armies have laid siege to the city, which means Isaiah has to pass through. I don't know why anybody allowed him to do this, but anyhow, he had to pass through the armies of Pekah and the armies of Rezin stand outside of the city walls. Actually, if you go back to verse 3, we're not going back there. But it tells you the actual spot where he was. He's looking up at these 50-foot-high plus city walls, which are just massive. Ahaz is standing on the ramparts. Ahaz is standing up on the wall, and he's peering over the edge, but also seeing if anybody's got an arrow that they're ready to fire his way. Isaiah is shouting up to him, and he's having this conversation. And he says some things to him here. He says in verse 4, he says, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, do not let your heart be faint. Because these people standing out here behind me, they're not a threat to you. All they are is a bunch of smoldering stumps. They're not blazing fire. They're not, they're not about ready to torch the city down. These guys are nothing for you to worry about. God told me to tell you that that's the case. Verse 7, And Ahaz the, and, or, he says, Ahaz thus says the Lord God, the plans of these two kings, Reza and Pekin, it shall not stand, and their plans, it shall not come to pass. I imagine that those soldiers were listening in on Isaiah's conversation, probably didn't like what he was saying. Uh, hey, don't worry about these guys out here. But nevertheless, Isaiah showed up in obedience, and he says these things. He wants to reassure Ahaz now that God uh, is indeed, that he's truthful in his uh, prediction here. He's truthful in what he's saying, that you don't need to worry about these armies outside of your city gates. 
And so, uh, verse 11, he offers to give Ahaz a sign. He says, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. In other words, the sky's the limit. I mean, you come up with whatever you could possibly imagine. If you want stars to fall out of the sky tomorrow, I'll make sure stars fall out of the sky tomorrow. If you want the blood or the moon to turn to blood, I'll make the moon turn to blood. If you want a herd of buffalo to come running through town, I'll make a herd of buffalo come running through town. Whatever it is, you just come up with it. You identify whatever sign it is that you want, and I will make sure that that happens. Um, and you put your name on it, and God says, I will show you that sign to reassure you that these two armies, Reza and Pekin, or Pekka, are, have, are no threat to you. So Ahaz basically has a decision in front of him. He can trust in what God is saying through Isaiah. He can ignore these people who are outside of his city walls until they go away. They're going to get, eventually, they're just going to get tired, and they're going to go away. Or he can figure something else out. Verse 12. Here is Ahaz's response. Verse 12. But Ahaz said... I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, he's actually quoting here from the Old Testament where God says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And so you'd think on the surface, well, that's very commendable of you, Ahaz, very humble of you to, to want to keep the scriptures here. But really what this is, is it's a veiled way of dodging God's directions. Um, it's a sneaky way, a cunning way of him to say, you know what, God, I've already got a plan. I've already sent ambassadors to Assyria. I've got this worked out. Um, and so that's really what he's doing here. Um, Isaiah is there to prevent uh, all of that. Ahaz, he's saying, you don't know what you're doing, even though you think you do. You're trying to follow your own political move, maneuvering and cunning, but it won't work out the way you want it to. Just, just ignore these armies. Don't do anything with Assyria. God's in charge. Just, just sit tight. Verse 14. Um, here's the point of all this story. Isaiah says, God's going to give you a sign anyway. Verse 14, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, let's start, stop there and just uh, talk about this prediction for a second. I, gotta, you know, I have a slide for you, but I don't know if you'll be able to read it. So. <laughs> Take a picture, zoom in. I don't know. Follow along with me as I talk about it. I saw this earlier, and I told Ben, I was like, I'm going to have to run down there and redo that one. Forgot to. Um, so uh, let, let's talk about this prediction here. Um, the word that is translated virgin in English comes from the Hebrew word alma. Alma indicates or points to a young woman of marriageable age. It goes without saying that in ancient Hebrew culture, a young woman of marriageable age was a virgin. That is not even like close to being up for debate. Um, this is, this is uh, conservative Hebrew world, right? Premarital, nothing. There was absolutely no anything going on behind the scenes of any sort. Again, the fact that she, her virginity would not even been in question. The question that this raises, though, is does Isaiah intend to indicate a miraculous conception, behold, the virgin shall conceive a son, or is he simply saying, this young gal over here that's a virgin, she will be wed, she will end up having a child. Is that what he's saying? Kind of a, a little bit lackluster, right? That's just kind of the normal course of life. Or is he saying that some miraculous thing's going to happen, that this young lady who is a virgin, she will remain a virgin all the way up until the time of the birth of her child. Uh, remember, this is supposed to be a sign to Ahaz. 
to convince him, to show him that, look, God said you don't need to worry about these folks. And God meant it. And so, um, this, so that's kind of two ways of thinking about it there. For me, the context dictates the interpretation. Let me say that again. The context of the story dictates the interpretation. Can you say that with me for just a second? You mind doing that? The context dictates the interpretation. This is supposed to be a sign. Back in verse 11, it said, as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. I mean, something magnanimous, something incredible, something miraculous, something that only God could do. But if this is just pointing to a young woman who gets married and gets pregnant, again, where is the sign in that? Where is the miracle in that? Where is the reassurance that God is at work in that? Again, the, the context should dictate the interpretation. Apparently, the Jewish rabbis agree because in the 3rd century B.C., I'm back to my slide here, in the 3rd century B.C., uh, 300s B.C., when they were translating the Hebrew Bible into the Greek language to make it more accessible, they used the Greek word parthenos, which is a very specific word meaning, guess what? Virgin. So when they were translating the Hebrew Bible to make it more accessible to people in the new Greek-run world, and they translated it into what's called the Septuagint. They use the word Parthenos, which is the Greek word meaning virgin. So those 75 rabbis that got together to write the Septuagint, the Greek translation from the Hebrew Bible, that's the way they saw it. And they, they, they thought that the context should dictate the, the interpretation. So if the, Hebrew, if the rabbis in the third century believed this, who were engaged in the exercise of Bible translation, looked into this story and understood this to mean that Isaiah was saying that a virgin was going to get pregnant, something that would make this a miraculous sign, then that's pretty strong evidence of how we should understand this passage. I would enter as additional evidence that the first use of the word Alma in the Hebrew Bible comes in Genesis chapter 24 and verse 43. It's the story where Isaac's servant is out looking for a wife, a bride, for Isaac. And he tells God, hey God, in verse 43, he says, Behold, I am standing by a spring of water. Let the virgin, the Alma, who comes out to draw water, let her be the one that I'm supposed to bring back as Isaac's bride. Um, so again, we have here in the first use, um, it's going to be Rebecca, who is not just some young woman of marriageable age who perhaps was married, but rather it is a, uh, a young woman who is a virgin. When this word is used, it is assumed that the person it is describing is a virgin. Now, that is an issue that is hotly debated by Bible scholars. And I, it's neither here nor there for, for anybody but me, perhaps. Um, I spent hours over at Point University reading in their library, read everything that everybody had to say about this this past week. But... Um, so I had a lot of fun, but anyhow, I just broke it down for you there in just a few minutes. Um, that's where I landed. That's how I see this. I believe Isaiah is offering up a miraculous sign to Ahaz and to the people of Judah that they do not need to worry about the threat of resin, that they do not need to worry about the threat of Pekah. He is out there in obedience to what God's asking him to do and, um, and sharing this information with them that, hey, look, God's going to give you a miraculous sign that, uh, that you need not worry about these foreign threats. You'll notice in verse 14, back to verse 14, that this virgin-born son already has his name picked out. It says that the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Um, this is real quickly, I just wanted to, I've got another slide for you here, and it shows 
uh, how this, some of the Hebrew names are put together. So the word El in Hebrew, it means God. And so a lot of the names in Hebrew of the prophets and of some of the kings, their names were compound words. Um, and so their names had meaning to them. And so, for example, you can see there, Donnie, El, El Donnie means judge. When you put Donnie and El together, you get God is our judge. So Daniel, that's what Daniel means. Another word is Ishma. Ishma when you, means heard. When you put Ishma together with the word El, Ishmael, you get God has heard. Another one, Nathani, which means given. When you combine the words Nathani and El, you get the meaning God has given. Think back through all of the names in the Old Testament. People like Joel, people like Ezekiel, people like Eli, people like Elijah, right? That word El, God, is in a lot of their names, and you can see the meanings of some of those. With that in mind, Emanu, Emanu means with us. And so the word Emanu El means God with us. God is with us. So this child of miraculous birth will be named a name that will remind his mom, that will remind Ahaz up on that wall that Isaiah is hollering at, will remind the people behind the wall that are all huddled up and trying to be in, be in safety, and will remind all of them that no matter what comes, Emmanuel or Emmanuel, God is with us. All right, well, that is our treatment of this text for today. And so that means it's time for us to stop here and ask the question we ask every week around here. What difference does all this make, right? I mean, what is, I, I'm trying to get off to school with the kids. I'm trying to think about summer plans. I've got all kinds of things coming up for Mother's Day. Uh, we've got church picnic on the horizon, graduation stuff to go to. What difference does any of this make to my life? Well, that's a great question. Let's see if we can answer that. I asked you all a question at the beginning of the sermon today. Here's the slide that shows you that question. The question was, does Isaiah know, as he was standing outside that city wall, hollering up at Ahaz and the people on the other side, does he realize that in the words he's saying to Ahaz, that he is actually creating indicators, he is creating prescriptions, he is creating signs that will confirm that Jesus is Messiah. 700 years later. Um, I'll tell you my thoughts on that. I don't think he did. I don't think Isaiah had any clue in the world. I think he was just doing what God asked him to do. I think he was being obedient to what God asked him to say. And then he was out there with the soldiers behind him, hollering up at, his, up at King Ahaz. And he was just following the course of what God had asked him to do. Um, I don't think Isaiah knew that he was creating a criteria of the Messiah any more than the Israelites in Egypt knew that those lambs that they were sacrificing out at their doorsteps were, would one day point to the Lord Jesus on the cross. Was Isaiah doing again what God asked him? Absolutely he was. But did Isaiah know that he was making predictions about the manner of the Messiah's birth? I don't, not only do I not think, I don't think he had any clue, any notion whatsoever that these were messianic fulfillment criteria. In fact, I don't believe that any of the Jews, even up until the time of Jesus, even during the life and ministry of Jesus, regarded this virgin birth account as having anything at all to do with messianic fulfillment. If it did, think about this, 
If it did, if this, if this was a messianic criteria to the Jew, in the minds that, I'm not saying it wasn't, in the, we'll get there in a minute, in the minds of the Jewish people, then why, when they heard that this baby was born in Bethlehem to a virgin, did they not all sit up and run to the, to the manger? Why, did, why was that piece of information in Jesus' past used by the doctors of the law as a way to ridicule Jesus when he walked out onto the scene? Born of a virgin? Yeah, I'm right. We know how the world works. We know how the birds and the bees work. I mean, we know a good cover story when we hear it. That's how the Jews of Jesus' day regarded that piece of information. No one was associating the virgin birth with the coming of the Messiah. That is, no one looked to Isaiah standing outside the city walls of Jerusalem, hollering up at Ahaz as some sort of messianic, ding, 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 here's what, here's the Messiah. The title of my sermon this morning is Understanding Bible Prophecy. Understanding Bible prophecy. There were some indicators in the Old Testament that those doctors of the Jewish law knew to look for to confirm the Messiah. For example, that this Messiah was going to come from the bloodline of David. That's why when you open up Matthew's gospel, when you open up Luke's gospel, you get these these, uh, genealogies of the Lord Jesus, tracing him all the way back to the bloodline of David. Signs like him being born in Bethlehem. Signs like there would be a herald announcing his coming. Signs like the miracles of the, of the Messiah, especially the messianic miracles such as healing a man born blind. They knew to look for those things. But dying on a cross as a Passover lamb? Nobody was looking for that. Nobody was connecting those dots. There's this beautiful account in Luke's gospel where right after Jesus' resurrection, he's walking on the road to a town called Emmaus. Emmaus was a little town northwest of Jerusalem. And there were some two gentlemen that had come to Jerusalem for Passover, for Passover weekend. And they were on their way back at the after Passover week, on Sunday morning after Passover weekend. Um, and they happened to be followers of Jesus. They were hopeful that he was the Messiah. And out of nowhere, Jesus just appears and begins walking down the road with them. Now, the Holy Spirit... I don't know if the Holy Spirit disguised Jesus. I don't know if the Holy Spirit just prevented those two men from being, it seems to be what's indicated in the text, that they prevented those two men from recognizing Jesus. He's resurrected from the dead now. He was recognizable as, his, as who he was before, his identity, but for some reason these guys were not able to detect that. Um, and so they begin to share with Jesus about all these terrible things that just happened uh, to Jesus, not realizing that's him, during that past week. They were hoping he was the Messiah, but they took their Messiah and put him on the cross, and his body was placed in the tomb, and then they share sadly that somebody showed up that morning and stole the body, so the news had already begun to spread about that. These two fellows knew that. And then Jesus records this. He writes, Luke 24 and verse, I'm sorry, Luke writes, Luke 24 and verse 25. And Jesus said to these two men, O foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Verse 26. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. Verse 27. And beginning with Moses, that's the first five books of the Old Testament, and beginning with Moses and the prophets, that's Joshua all the way through to Malachi, um, he interpreted or he explained to them in all of the scriptures the things concerning himself. 
What an amazing, think about it. Jesus is walking with these two fellows on the road to Emmaus, and he's opening up the Old Testament to them and just going page by page by page. What an amazing Bible study <laughs> that that must have been. As Jesus showed them in the story of Abraham and Isaac, how he said to the two guys, do y'all remember the story of Abraham and Isaac? Yeah, we remember the story of Abraham and Isaac. Isaac was uh, Abraham's only son, and Abraham took him up to the city of Salem, later to be called Jerusalem, and he was going to sacrifice his son there, raise the knife. God cried, God cried out and said, don't do it. And so Jesus says, hey, don't you know, don't you see, don't you remember what Jesus said, how that was a foreshadowing of himself? As God's one and only son. And John records that in his gospel. John chapter 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. The story of Abraham and Isaac all of a sudden exploded to these two men. As they're walking on their way to, to Emmaus. Jesus is explaining. He's showing them how Jesus fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. Lots of times in our mind we hear prophecy. We think of you know, prediction about where he's going to be born. Prediction about his bloodline. Give me some more criteria that we can just check off, check off, check off, check off. But Jesus is saying, hey, look, it's much more expansive than that. He's saying this whole thing about this Old Testament, all these stories in there, they are all pointing toward the Lord Jesus himself. He reminds them about the tabernacle system and how there was only one way to get to God. God was in the Holy of Holies in the back of that tabernacle. And that if you wanted to get to where God was, you had to come by way of blood. Make your sacrifice out the front of the tabernacle. And then you had to come by way of water. And then you, only a high priest could go in there and meet with God. You couldn't even go in there yourself and meet with God. You had to have somebody as <clears throat> who God appointed, who God approved, who God had declared righteous, who could come in there and meet on your behalf, this high priest. And he says, don't you remember Jesus saying to you all while he was here on this earth, no one comes to the Father but through me? Again, Minds are exploding, and they're beginning to see Jesus more and more on the pages of the Old Testament. He showed them the story of Isaiah chapter 7, Isaiah's prediction about this virgin birth and the son that would be called Emmanuel, God with us. Something that in Isaiah's day, Isaiah would just stand out there being obedient to God. He was just doing what God told him to go do that day. Little did Isaiah know, little did the Jewish people know, that Isaiah was creating a marker Isaiah was creating an identifier that when the Messiah would come, we could hold up Jesus against the backdrop of the Old Testament. And whew, here he comes flying off the pages of the Old Testament. The Passover lambs that were slaughtered that weekend, he goes, guys, come on. Remember, remember Friday, just like two days, three days ago, how those lambs were slaughtered at the temple, 250,000 plus of them? At 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And when did Jesus die? At 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Oh, oh my goodness. Right? He perfectly fulfilled the Old Testament. All of those things. All of the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. Again, friends, when you hold up Jesus against the backdrop of the Old Testament, all of a sudden, the Old Testament, Bible prophecy comes alive. But friends, it wasn't until Jesus had died and rose again that people began to see it. I imagine that those early years of Christianity were filled 
with eureka moment after eureka moment as they discovered more they began to read through the text and read it through the lens of the lord jesus and they just saw jesus popping off the pages of the old testament more and more and more amazing he was pure we read that verse last week he was pierced for our transgressions he was wounded for our iniquity oh my goodness right jesus crying out from the cross psalm chapter 22 my god my god why have you forsaken me I mean, remarkable. All of this stuff just starts becoming alive for them. It prompted those early Christians to even want to write all of the details of Jesus' life and ministry down so that future generations would be able to hold up the life of Jesus against the backdrop of the Old Testament and would be able to see Jesus popping off the pages of Scripture. They wanted to make sure that you and I did not miss the connection between his life and the Old Testament scriptures. We tend to think, again, of Bible prophecy as making predictions about the future. And it is that. Isaiah did make predictions about the future. We saw that in great detail last week. But a lot of the times he did not know that what he was actually doing served a dual purpose. It had contemporary significance. Yeah, Isaiah was telling Ahaz, giving him a sign that, hey, don't worry about Pekah, don't worry about resin. But it also pointed toward, in its grander fulfillment, a dual purpose. It pointed toward the Lord Jesus. They would become criteria that would confirm the identity of the Messiah. Um, That was good. I've been waiting all week to say say that to you. Um, All right, when you hold up Jesus against the backdrop of the Old Testament, the Old Testament comes alive with Messiah. He is all over its pages. And it is for this reason that Matthew... Matthew chapter 1 and verse 22 writes, telling about the story of the virgin birth, he says, all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And then he quotes verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. For 33 years of Jesus' life, that was used as something to ridicule him. It was a taunt of his critics. But friends, in hindsight, looking after his resurrection, after his death, after his resurrection, that detail, among many others, becomes part of the marvelous tapestry of the sovereign hand of God at work in human history. Um, God planned that event out, going back 700 years before to the time of Isaiah, Um, God had orchestrated that event in the life of Ahaz and in the ministry of Isaiah so that one day when you and I, when you and I got a little wishy-washy about this Jesus as Messiah and started asking questions that we ask, right? Am I sure that I've got the truth? Am I sure that Christianity is right or am I putting my, my trust and my faith, my hope for eternity in a false belief system? Friends, all of that, God put all of that together so that we could hold up the Lord Jesus against the backdrop of the Old Testament and go, yes, 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 I have found the truth. Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is my Savior. I know that he is Messiah. There's no doubt about it. What difference does this make to your life and to mine? Two points. I'll be very quick here. Number one, if you have a Bible teacher who thinks that the Old Testament is old, 
that's out there. And, I, you know, I'm not trying to, let me, let me just stop here for a second, because I want to make sure that I didn't get on a soapbox and pretend like I'm somebody, right? I, I really, th- I, there's a lot of this out there, unfortunately. And some of the folks that think that the Old Testament is old, and they're teaching that the Old Testament's old, the Old Testament's unnecessary. These people really do love Jesus. Let, let's be honest. I, I believe they do. And, and their intentions are honorable and noble, and we could spend a lot of time talking about that. But those statements are most likely made out of ignorance. I mean, God, please help them get some good teachers, get some folks that would come along and mentor them and show them, hey, look, gang, this is what the Old Testament represents. It's more than just that. But this is what the Old Testament represents. It is a backdrop when we hold up Jesus to it that points toward the Lord Jesus, that confirms him as Messiah. And so this is, this is just my advice here this morning, that if you have a, a Bible teacher who, is, who thinks that the Old Testament is old, I would encourage you, and I say this in all humility, to find a new Bible teacher. Here at Hebron, our Bible teachers get this. They do. Here at Hebron, our Bible teachers are on board with this. They understand what the Old Testament represents. They understand what it is that we're teaching when we teach the Old Testament. But if perhaps you listen to some podcast or something like that, or you just connect with different voices out there, and some of these folks are saying, hey, you know what, the Old Testament, that's just old. That's just unnecessary. Friends, uh, holler at me. I'll, 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 um, I'll give you some recommendations of some new podcasts uh, to listen to. So catch me after church. I'll give you a long list. Number two, finally. What difference does this make to your life and to mine? Number two, let us never devalue, friends, the impact of obedience. Let us never devalue the impact of obedience. Just like Isaiah, we don't know the extent of what our obedience will mean in the present to the plans of God in the future. I would propose to you today that your obedience is actually creating ripples throughout eternity. You know, we may feel like at times, I don't know that what I'm doing really counts. We may feel like George on It's a Wonderful Life. <laughs> what, 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 what purpose is being created out of my life? What is God doing? I mean, God's asked me to pray, I pray. God asked me to read my Bible, I read my Bible. God asked me to give, I'll give. God asked me to go share love with my neighbor or encourage somebody at work. I go and I do those things. But I wonder sometimes, bringing the kids to church, going through all the routine and the motions and everything, I wonder sometimes, like, what is it difference is it making? Well, friend, please see on the pages of Scripture today that your obedience matters. We have no idea what getting up and answering the call of God every morning might mean in the bigger plans of God. Friends, what this text tells us is that when we respond with obedience, we are making ripples into eternity, whether we realize it or not. So never devalue the impact of obedience. Let's pray. Most gracious God, we thank you for speaking to us today. We thank you for fresh vision over our life and the meaning of why we're doing what we're doing. Lord, we thank you for being a God who recognizes that sometimes we do get a little wishy-washy in our commitment, in our being convinced. And so, Lord, all we need to do is open the pages of the Old Testament 
and begin seeing the Messiah pop off a page after story after story after account after account. And we can confirm again in our minds that yes, yes, Jesus is Messiah. He is the way. He is my Lord and my Savior. As we gather around this table this morning, we are reminded again, Lord, of your broken body, of your shed blood. Encourage our hearts today. May we renew our commitment to you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.